You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 54, part two of the Ottomans. Before I start recapping episode 52, part one of the Ottomans, which there's a lot to recap, let me go over the normal shenanigans. Hope you enjoyed episode 53, my review of All Quiet on the Western Front. <coughs> Excuse me. Although it wasn't really a proper movie review, it was more just me rambling about the book and the different movie versions. And the book, in my opinion, is still the best way to go. You know, recording an episode, just winging it and not going off a script has proven difficult for me. If I had a person sitting across from me holding a non-scripted conversation, it's easy to flow because it's just holding a normal conversation between two people or, or more. But sitting by yourself without a script for the majority of the show... I just haven't got comfortable with that yet, but I'm working on it. I have a lot of respect for podcasters that can do that. Even the big names in talk radio, such as Howard Stern, have some form of script. But yeah, the movie, the new 2022 Netflix version of All Quiet on the Western Front is outstanding. The cinematography, the dark lighting really set the tone for the trench scenes. Actors were on point. I'm a fan of CGI, so I enjoyed all of that. My opinion on CGI technology is that it makes movies like this, war movies, so much better than, say, 30-plus years ago. Saving Private Ryan came out, what, over, over 20 years ago? And even it had a lot of good CGI, making it more realistic. To me, it just keeps getting better and better. And the tone through All Quiet on the Western Front, that da-na-na, just added this sinister feel to the movie, which I really enjoyed. I like it better than that melancholy ambiance. And look, World War I was scary. It's, it's supposed to be scary. This was pure hell on earth, as described by veterans who survived it and those who witnessed it. I hope we see more War One movies like All Quiet on the Western Front, the 2022 version. All right. So what am I drinking for this episode? Where did it go? I am drinking a Trappistis Rochefort. I hope I said that right. But you know, I tend to butcher words. Let's see how this thing is. It's smooth, just like a, ooh, actually, that is really good. I haven't had this one in a long time. Belgian beer, and I'm almost positive. Yep, this is one of the Trappistry beers. Hmm. Really smooth. And it comes in, well, out of the place I got this from, Total Wine and more. It comes in three versions, I believe the 6, 8, and 10. 10 being the quadruple. I went with the lower one. Those heavy ones just, woo. I mean, they sit heavy in your gut and 
you can only take so much. So I thought I'd go with the lighter one. And I'm glad I did because uh, because it's smooth. Okay. Enough of me banging around this desk and making noise. Let's say we do some recapping. Going back, episode 52, the Ottomans. Its purpose was to tell the backstory on the Ottomans and how they ended up in the war. Here we have this vast empire who had been through centuries of war. Its people had lost many generations to fighting. The people, frankly, were kind of tired of it and welcomed a new era that would bring not only stability from fighting, but also more opportunities such as financial growth. But it was inevitable Europe would have an all-out war after the Balkan Wars ended because of favored treaties. Unfortunately for the Ottomans, it was also inevitable they would be dragged into this. But before the Great War kicked off, the Ottoman economy was experiencing fast growth, which they hadn't seen. Really, they hadn't experienced such an economic boom like this ever. Because now you're talking planes, trains, and automobiles being introduced after the Industrial Revolution and advancements with new mechanical gear, which made its way to the empire. Another great thing for their economy was the demobilized soldiers from the Balkan Wars returning to the workforce and the farms, which produced goods. The trade sea lines were opened up in full swing, which always helps the economy. In the spring of 1914, the empire secured a 100 million monetary loan from France to invest in electricity, public lighting, urban tramways, inner city railroads, and modern port facilities. Things were looking up for the Ottomans and the people enjoyed it. That is, until old bitter feelings re-emerged with Greece from the Balkan War Treaty, which gave Greece dominance in Turkish waters. The Ottomans didn't like Greece having a dominating presence in the Aegean. The Ottomans viewed this as a threat which their answer was the creation for a powerful navy to gain the upper hand. They commissioned two state-of-the-art dreadnoughts from Great Britain. Of course, this caused a rise in tension with Greece and Russia. Greece viewed this as a possible war with the Ottomans. The Russians wanted full control of the straits because they depended heavily on the Black Sea shipping lanes for trade. The last thing both wanted was the Ottomans having full power over the sea. Russia also wanted to reclaim Constantinople back to Orthodox Christianity after five centuries of Muslim rule. In December of 1913, the Ottomans sent a request to German Kaiser to have his imperial army rebuild the crumbling Ottoman army. German General Otto Lehmann von Sanders was given the job. By the summer of 1914, the Ottomans really had a ton of bricks on its shoulders. They were experiencing an economic boom like they've never seen, yet at the same time, they were dealing with all the political mess that surrounded them. Their main threat was Russia. And then, the Archduke was assassinated. Politicians and aristocrats went back and forth with negotiations and all sorts of other BS which amounted to squat. Diplomacy failed the world. Kemal Pasha had been invited to France in July of 1914, 
and left back home knowing France wouldn't protect them against Russia, and that the British were making every excuse not to deliver the two dreadnoughts, which had been purchased by the people of the empire. On August 1st, the Brits requisitioned the Ottoman dreadnoughts. The Turks took the German side after playing a political game of chess. Their economy was already beginning to collapse. Men between the ages of 20 and 45, the whole labor force, were now being called up for war. Again. There was nobody to work the factories and farms now. On August 3rd, the Ottomans closed the Dardanelles Straits. Germany, along with the Sultan and the Young Turks, all believed the most powerful weapon the Ottomans could bring to the table in a world war was a global jihad. They needed to gain the sympathy from the Muslims around the world. On October 29th, the Turkish Navy, and I'm saying that with finger quotes because the sailors and officers of the SMS Goben were German, they opened hostilities on the Crimean Black Sea fleet sinking a gunboat and a mine-laying vessel. Russia, Great Britain, and France recalled their ambassadors from Constantinople and officially declared war on the Ottoman Empire on November 2nd. The Ottomans were now at war and were calling for a global jihad. And that brings us into part two of the Ottomans. On November 14th, 1914, the Ottomans read aloud the call for a holy war outside the mosque of Mehmed the Conqueror, or known today as Fatih Mosque. This was just a start for a long journey to gain the support from Muslims around the world to join the Ottoman Jihad, led by the Committee of Union and Progress, the Young Turks. The crowd roared with support, giving the Ottoman politicians hope. However, one big problem for the Ottomans and their new jihad was a large portion of the world's estimated 240 million Muslims were living under colonial rule. 100 million under British rule, 20 million under French, and another 20 million under Russia. So when the Sultan called for a new jihad, many doubted they would get the support they hoped for. Another problem the Ottomans faced, after many years of fighting, and men returning from the Balkan War. Once they received notification of a new war and mandatory draft, many men of fighting age began to flee from the empire. North and South America received the greatest amounts of immigrants seeking asylum from the war during this time. That was until the Ottoman government put a ban on men of military age leaving the country. They tightened the grip on the draft, literally going door to door mosque to mosque, posting flyers saying any man between the age group of 20 and 45 has five days to report to the nearest military office. By tightening this grip, they expanded their army from 200,000 to 500,000 within days. But there was financial strains attached to this. Remember, the men from this age group went from working the farms, factories, ports just to increase the ranks of the military. The men were also tax-paying workers. Now, the government was losing money. Taxes is what houses and feeds soldiers, 
and they were feeling the effects. We know the Dardanelles Straits had already been shut down, so they were already experiencing shortage on food and other traded goods. Of course, when this happens, inflation tends to rise, which in this case it did and wasn't good for the people. Citizens began to hoard food with the looming threat of starvation. They now faced a budget deficit. The loan from France was pretty much wiped out. The empire was collapsing and collapsing fast. The Entente power and even Germany felt the Ottoman Empire could come crumbling down at any time. You know, Germany didn't really expect much from them going into this. And now after the empire announced mobilization, European banks began to recall loans made to Ottoman financial institutions. Paris banks began demanding immediate repayment in gold for outstanding loans. Citizens were fleeing into banks in Constantinople, draining their savings. What really saved the empire for the time being was the financial assistance from Germany in return for their entrance into the war. Two million in gold up front, with another three million to be paid in installments over eight months following their entry. Germany also provided an estimated 29 million in military assistance, such as weapons and ammunition. And it was during this time the Ottoman treasury had to resort to drastic measures. On September 9th, they claimed their independence from European banks, making that day a national holiday. On October 1st, they passed a law taxing foreign residents and business owners. The government was requesting food, horses, livestock, and crops for the army. The empire also increased the taxes, which hit the citizens mostly, and was reported to have raised millions, but would overall end up damaging the economy in the long run. Now, as I stated earlier, the Ottomans are no strangers to war. The empire has been through centuries of conflict. What made the Great War different in November of 1914, this would be their first war where they had to meet the enemy on the battlefield, on all its frontiers, at the same time. We're talking about a large frontier, one that spans roughly 7,500 miles, spreading them out from the Black Sea, Persian Gulf, the Red Sea, and the Mediterranean, this left many vulnerable positions. Okay, so we know what happened with the Dardanelles, so I won't get into that. If you don't know what happened during this campaign, please refer to my Gallipoli series. But here's what sort of led to this. On November 1st, British warships in the Red Sea bombarded a fort at the head of the Gulf of Aqaba. Two days later, British and French ships off the Dardanelles rained down naval fire on the outer defenses of the Straits. In just 20 minutes time, they hit an ammunition storage depot, obliterating the fort there. The Turks were unable to respond to the attack, which gave the French and British the impression that the coastline was vulnerable and that the Entente had naval supremacy there. Again. I'm not going to go into the Dardanelles campaign, but for those who've been following this podcast or know the history on the Dardanelles, you'll know this wasn't the case and you'll know how this played out for the French and the British. So the Entente powers believed the Ottomans were the weak link for the Central Powers 
and should be easy to eliminate from the war, which in turn should cause Germany some headaches. Russia made the first move after the Goldman and Bruslo bombarded its Black Sea ports. They attacked the Ottomans by ground to the Caucasus frontier into eastern Anatolia. On November 2nd, Russian General Georgi Bergman, who was 60 years of age at the time, led his men into what is known as the Bergman Offensive, the first engagement of the Caucasus campaign. By November 5th, Bergman had completed his objectives by establishing a salient that ran parallel with the frontier. His troops fortified their positions along the high ground overlooking the Basin Valley, which was about 15 miles from Erzurum, all of which was met with no resistance. And because there was no resistance, Bergman got a little big-headed, which complemented the large beard he grew. On November 6th, he ordered a portion of his soldiers to continue their push deeper into Erzurum, into the village of Koprikoy, which without consulting headquarters. And the Turkish High Command had been monitoring the Russians' movement. On November 4th, Enver Pasha sent a telegram to Hassan Pasha, the commander in Erzurum, ordering a counterattack on the invaders. The Russians and the Turks met on the field of battle on the 6th of November. Touching a little bit on the soldiers, there was a big age group for men drafted into the war, and men from all demographics in the empire were mixed together. You had the uneducated mixed with the educated, you know, farmers mixed with businessmen, poor mixed with middle class, and even upper class because they were usually officers. I think you get the point. Men who had families by the time this war kicked off had a lot to lose. But to fight the Russians, they were willing to give their lives no matter what. Their fathers had fought the Russians during the 1877-1878 Russo-Turkish War, and a dark shadow loomed over their head after their loss. Now, the sons of the Russo-Turkish War veterans had a chance to avenge the empire. They now had an opportunity to kill Russians, sacrificing themselves they were willing to do. But sometimes what you wish for isn't what you exactly hope for. A good portion of the soldiers believe this war was their chance at glory until they actually got onto the battlefield. The battlefield can rip hopes away from any man. You'll have to imagine November at the Caucasus. It's raining and quite cold, in fact, darn near freezing. Then, as the Turks approached Koprikoy, the artillery began to pound the earth around them. Then came the constant cracking and hissing of the bullets passing them or impaling into the man next to them. The reality of war, the bullets, the shells, along with the horrible weather, was just too much for some of them to handle on the 7th of November. So, a good portion just pitched a tent and tried to sleep it off. I mean, what a hell of a response to this. Yeah, it's getting pretty bad out here, buddy. 
I think I'm just going to pitch a tent and, uh, and cop some Z's and we'll see what happens when I wake up. <laughs> I, I actually find this funny because it reminds me of a story my buddy told me about an experience he had at a school in the Army. So the U.S. Army really does run the show. They have all the professional schools for combat arms that the other branches can attend as long as their job is related to combat arms, such as infantry or anything related to it. At least that's how it was in my days. And international armies also send their soldiers to these schools. Schools such as Sniper School, um, Airborne School, Halo School, Combat Diver School, Pathfinder School, Ranger School, other shooting schools, was there mountaineering school and, and more? Anyways, wh when <laughs> one of my buddies, when he went through ranger school, he had an international soldier from Africa. My buddy was in charge of the squad and was being graded when they came to a halt. I believe it was for like a map check. Next thing he knew, the soldier dropped Ruck, took out his poncho because it was raining wrapped himself up like a burrito and decided to take a nap because he was tired and hungry. <laughs> Long story short, you can't fail international students or soldiers because the story we were given many years ago was that one soldier failed, went back to his country, and they executed him. I don't know if it's still a standing rule in the armies, schools, or it was during my time. They couldn't fail any international soldiers, supposedly for this reason. Who knows? Maybe it was for diplomatic purposes. Either way, <laughs> I thought it was funny. But at the time, I'm sure my buddy wasn't abused at all. Oh, the Turks copying Z's made me think of this. Anywho, I'm steering way off course with that. So... The next morning after the Turks came out of their tents, the Russians continued to unleash hell on them. Shell after shell. Men were being ripped apart. The, the dead were being thrown everywhere all around. But you'll have to give credit to the Turks for courage. They stood their ground. Even with the shelling and holding off Russian advancements with their rifles. What changed the tempo of the big guns slaughtering the Turks? On the 8th of November, Russian artillery started landing on its own line, killing many of their own with friendly fire. The Russians were getting shelled so hard by their guns, they were forced to pull back. On November 11th, short on ammunition, facing a determined Turkish defense, Bergman launched another assault, losing 40% of his men. The Turks chased them in retreat all the way back to the line they originally held on November the 5th at the Pasin Valley. Just in those several days of the Bergman Offensive, the Turks suffered an estimated 8,000 casualties and the Russians an estimated 6,000. This was a very bloody battle in just nine days' time. Both sides believed that this would be the battle before winter snow made in and made it impassable at the Caucasus. And maybe this was Bergman's reasoning. 
bruised and battered with winter knocking at the door, each side dug in waiting for their next orders. Okay, now let me talk about Basra. Basra today is a city in southern Iraq close to Kuwait. The river Shat al-Arab runs right through it. The river begins in the Persian Gulf and runs right past both the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, this was a port that served as a commercial gateway between Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf. The Shat al-Arab marked the boundary between Persia and the Ottoman Empire. Iran didn't officially change the name to Iran until 1935. That's kind of irrelevant. The British, however, are relevant because they had great interest in the Shat al-Arab. Why? Because in 1908, the Anglo-Persian oil company had struck gold. Black gold, that is. Oil. In commercial quantities. Nations have been sending their sons and daughters to die for this black gold for a long time now. In 1901, a businessman by the name of William Knox Darcy secured a 60-year concession to explore and obtain oil, natural gas, asphalt, and ozokrite in Persia. Ozokrite is a earth wax, better known as mineral wax. It's, I believe it's used in, in uh, beauty products. Darcy's company not only had backing by a British syndicate, they also had the political backing from the Royal Navy. Why the Navy? Because the Navy was seeking a reliable source of fuel for its fleet that had shifted from coal to oil. So, after the Anglo-Persian found oil and lots of it, they eventually built a refinery on the island of Abadan on the Shat al-Arab in 1912. This was the perfect site for them because it provided direct access to the sea lanes. Now, the owner of this island where the refinery was built was owned by a man named Shait Kazal. He was a British protege. Kazal had power. He had a 20,000 strong fighting force and the British pledged to protect him in return for his adherence to the British treaty system binding most of the Arab rulers in the Persian Gulf. So, even before the Ottoman Empire began negotiating with France and Russia prior to them entering the Great War, the British already sent an expeditionary force to invade Basra to secure its assets. British military generals and politicians from London and Bombay met in secrecy in September and October of 1914 with their plans for the invasion. They wanted to strategically keep this movement of troops on the down low with fear of an uprising. They didn't want to stir up anything with the Muslim communities, making it seem like aggressive actions were taking place, which could result in religious riots. Instead, they wanted to move the expedition forces into place, making it look like a standard training movement. You know, that sort of attitude of nothing to see here folks just just an army moving through forget what you're seeing they were going to pre-position the British troops near Basra and then after the Ottomans declared war they would move them into place 
Brigadier General Walter Delamain and his men boarded their ships in Bombay on the 16th of October as part of the Indian Expeditionary Force headed to the, saying in quotations, Western Front. Delamain received an envelope with strict orders not to open it until 72 hours after taking off. After those three days, he opened the envelope. He was being rerouted to the Persian Gulf. He was ordered to proceed to Bahrain and wait for further instructions. Delamain and his force reached Bahrain on the 23rd of October, 1914. Once he arrived there, he was ordered to proceed to Shat al-Arab to secure the oil refinery at Abadan, along with their storage tanks and pipeline at the head of the Persian Gulf. Once at the Persian Gulf, he was ordered to enlist the support of their Arab allies to secure the area. Once war was declared by the Ottomans, Delamain was free to take action necessary to strengthen his position along with occupying Basra. And there was rumors that the British were coming, of course. I think most of us know that it doesn't take long for rumors to spread. Once the first British soldiers began to arrive in Bahrain, immediately rumors spread in Basra of an imminent attack. But the citizens in Basra, they really had mixed emotions. The British consul reported negative outlooks on the Russians and British. However, they depended heavily on trade and any war between the Ottomans and the British could have a negative impact on their economy. And I think it was because of this, the economy and trade, Muslim loyalty to the Sultan in Basra wasn't fully there. I'll call it on the fence. Saeed Talib al-Nakib was leader of the Basra Reform Society, who was an advocate for Arab culture rights and was in favor of a decentralized Ottoman Empire. Saeed Talib is an important figure for the British at this time. Talib was elected to the Ottoman Parliament in 1908. At first, he showed cooperation with the Committee of Union and Progress, the CUP, but it didn't take time for his voice to be heard about his favoritism towards Arab culture and political rights. During his political career with the Ottomans, he made enemies with the CUP, dangerous enemies. The threat became so real for Talib, he refused going to Constantinople to take his seat in fear the CUP would have him assassinated. Even after the Reform Society swept the 1914 Ottoman Parliament elections, he still lived in fear. Now, just like any other great war political drama, you can add this to the list. Talib was accused, even by a member of his own Reform Society, of him secretly meeting the British to pledge his loyalty to them insecure of governing Basra along with the British protection. His own peeps ratted him out to the CUP. But the story they told the CUP wasn't exactly the truth. The CUP did issue a warrant for his arrest, and I'm sure this instilled some fear into Saeed. But he did refuse the British deal. His thought was, why go from one master to another? And again, 
I think overall the fear of being assassinated by the CUP led him to refusing the British deal. Either way, he sent a telegram to Enver Pasha saying he would prove his loyalty to the CUP and that he would defend Basra from the British with the help of the Saudis. His pledge worked because the CUP said if he could pull this off, he would be given the governorship of Basra for his efforts. It's amazing how fear of being murdered can quickly change loyalty from one side to the other. So now the British are concerned about Arab loyalty. S.G. Knox issued a proclamation to the rulers and sheikhs in the Persian Gulf along with their subjects saying, Your relations with Great Britain are of long standing. And I take this opportunity of assuring you that in this struggle, we shall do our utmost to preserve for you your liberty and religion. The British also went as far as putting together a formal agreement for recognizing Kuwait's independence from the Ottoman Empire under British protection. In return, Kuwait would help liberate Basra from Turkish possession. Saeed Talib made a push to gain Muslim sympathy and support throughout the Gulf in favor of the Ottomans. But by late November, it was too late. Basra had already been occupied by the British. Talib had failed the CUP and once again became an enemy to his own people. All he could do at this point was surrender himself back to the British. It was either that or his head would end up in a basket. He was sent to India for the duration of the war. On November 14th, British reinforcements, including six Indian divisions, arrived, which was enough to protect Abadan and to march onto Basra. There was also the support from the Royal Navy, who had warships sent to the Shat al-Arab. General Sir Arthur Barrett wanted to strike first before the Ottomans could group themselves together. On November 15th, his forces attacked Turkish positions, leaving 160 dead on the battlefield. On November 17th, he continued the attack on the Turks, this time at Sahil. The British, including Indian casualties, was estimated to be around 500. The Ottomans were between 1,500 and 2,000. Barrett claimed in his dispatches that his men proved to be superior along with demoralizing the Turks after their severe loss. I mean, I personally wouldn't call 500 casualties good considering they had a much larger force and the Royal Navy. They also had better equipment and just overall much more organized and, and a well-trained army. I would have been very concerned by that casualty number, but Barrett wasn't. After more defeats, the Ottomans came to the conclusion that Basra was untenable. They abandoned the city on November 21st, right when Talib was looking for support to secure it. Immediately after Ottoman officials left the city, lawlessness set in. Rioters swept through the city running amok, looting, burning, destroying businesses, shops, and government offices. The American consul sent a wire to the British pleading for them to send guards to protect the city before it ends up in ruins. 
Immediately, the Royal Navy sent two ships to Basra to secure the waterfront until the troops could arrive. On November 23rd, the troops arrived and the British flag began waving over the city. They achieved their objectives by driving out the Ottomans from the head of the Persian Gulf in order to protect their oil at Abaddon. Sir Percy Cox urged that the troops continue their pursuit of the retreating Ottomans and to seize Baghdad. But this was denied by military planners. Instead, the troops were authorized a limited advance to the town of Kurna, at the junction of the Tigris and Euphrates. If they could secure Kurna, they would control all of the Shat al-Arab. The campaign for Kurna began on December 3rd. Royal Navy vessels taxied the soldiers into their landing locations four miles south of the town. The landing was very similar to those at Gallipoli, just on a much smaller scale, also with different results. As the British marched on the left bank, they did encounter opposition, which did manage to halt the Anglo-Indian force. The Ottomans withdrew across the Tigris, hoping to buy some time. But time they didn't have much of. The British already sent a pontoon bridge and the Ottomans knew that they didn't stand a chance. December 6th, a Turkish vessel approached the Royal Navy announcing their surrender. The handover of Kurna took place on December 9th. I'm gonna go down the rabbit hole a little bit here. The British occupying Basra and Kurna is exactly that. It's an occupation. And naturally, in any occupation, you're going to get locals who don't want you there. And the British, just like the Spanish, Dutch, French, and Russians, they were colonizers. They handled occupations much like a colonization, in which they dominated the people by force. Basra wasn't a nice place to be after they arrived. Now, I'm not comparing the occupation of Basra and Kirna to something like the Armenian Genocide. I don't think it was to that extreme. I, I believe in this case, the British were really looking for any threats to them. But you be your own judge in this. Again, this is going down a rabbit hole, but is colonization and let's say the Germans, what they did to the Belgians at the start of the war. It may not be genocide, but would you consider it closely related? Men were dragged out of their homes and killed. I'm sure women were pillaged and raped. So are we talking tomatoes, tomatoes here? The British went through the villages knocking on doors. If they didn't get an answer at the first knock, they would imprison all the male occupants at the home. The British were ruthless, but this was embedded into them from centuries of colonizing. I mean, it's in their DNA at this point. Anybody who was suspected of resistance was probably going to be executed. Basra couldn't escape this. Men who defied them or ran away from them were caught, were tied to a scaffold and shot. 
Those who actually fought back were either shot down or hung in public to be made an example of. By now, we should know that fear doesn't win over the hearts and minds of the people. But the British weren't really out to win over the hearts and minds of the people. They promised a lot before hostilities, but in the end, they were only looking out for their personal interests. That was oil. I mean, Saeed Talib was kind of right. Those who decided to side with the Brits were basically going from kissing the one hand of the Ottomans and now kneeling to a new master. I'm a believer that history has a tendency to repeat itself. You know, fast forward to the 20th century, the occupation of Afghanistan after 9-11. The native Afghanis went from kneeling to the Taliban to them being told to kneel to the Americans, their, their new master. That was at least one part of the American political agenda. The plan to occupy was never going to work if they just brushed up on their history. That country has seen multiple invaders bringing war to its people for centuries. Death and destruction was nothing new to them. And I'm going to say this. I get the whole argument of taking the fight to the enemy instead of letting them bring it to us. That's not really what I'm talking about here. And I, I want to make sure there's a difference between that and what I'm talking about. I'm more talking about the history of occupying countries and then not really working because they don't want you there. You know, talking about winning over the natives, gaining their sympathy and support, asking them to choose our side. In most cases, it doesn't work. And history has proven that. And you can think of Iraq much of much like Afghanistan. Again, going to war, fighting the enemy, that's one thing. But once you start including or talking about an occupation, um, that's never going to be stable. And why would it? Who really wants their country to be occupied by a foreign invader? Anywho, let me get out of that hole. So the Brits, after taking Basra and Kurna, continued forward. After the British arrived in the Persian Gulf, the remainder of the Indian Expeditionary Force continued on to Egypt. The gateway into the Red Sea, which leads into Egypt, is a port city called Aden, a city in Yemen. Aden was annexed by the British in 1839 and was originally used as a base for the Royal Navy to battle pirates. Yep, <laughs> I said that. Pirates. But I don't think we're talking about the Jack Sparrow type. After opening the Suez Canal in 1869, the British developed a coaling station for its steamships in the city. The British basically developed a boundary between Ottoman Yemen and the protected Yemen by the British. So when the Ottomans entered the Great War, Aden transformed into a hostile border, which would result in another engagement between the Ottomans and the British. The hostile border ran along the Bab al-Mandab Straits. This is the gateway into the Red Sea. Think of the Dardanelles Straits when you think of this. And the Ottomans had hilltop forts protecting the sea lanes. The Ottomans had a stronghold at Sheikh Said, a rocky peninsula in Yemen, and the British held Param Island. I can't find Sheikh Said on a map. I can see Param though. 
The important thing here is that Bob Al-Mandab straight and seeing where that lies. Because all ships carrying British soldiers from India, Australia, and New Zealand had to pass through Bab al-Mandab into the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal. You can see why this is important for both sides to put up a fight here. On the morning of November 10th, British ships began bombarding Ottoman positions at Sheikh Zed. Much like the Dardanelles campaign, men, aboard, men boarded landing ships, then they were towed ashore by slow-moving tugboats as Turkish soldiers fired down on them. By the time the 69th Punjabis reached the first ridge, it had already been abandoned by the Ottoman defenders. Apparently, the bombardment from the ships and the 69th landing ashore was enough for them to hightail it out of Dodge. Throughout the night, the British soldiers destroyed all gun emplacements on the hilltops before withdrawing back to their own ships. The British continued on with their journey to Egypt on November 11th. Mission quickly accomplished. Several weeks after entering the Great War, the Ottomans gave the Entente the impression that they were unable to defend its frontiers. Again, this is at least how the Entente viewed this. On part three of the Ottomans, I'm going to dive into the campaigns at the Caucasus and Sinai. And that's going to wrap this episode up right here. I recently had a listener reach out to me with a Great War recommendation it's called The Charge of the Anzacs. It's a documentary about a group of Australians retracing the steps of the Australian light horse from 1917. Some of the Aussies are the grandchildren or descendants of the soldiers from this unit. Uh, I rented it on Amazon for 99 cents. You really can't beat watching a great documentary for less than a buck. So thank you for the recommendation, Josh. I enjoyed it. And folks, I think you will too. Thank you for listening in. Until the next episode, take care, everybody.